Welcome to Pretend I Know Nothing About. I'm Katie White, your host, administrator of COAAA. Today's episode is about passport. We'll hear from a clinical manager, a float, as well as a case manager. Let's get into it. And today we are learning about passport with Sue Housen. Welcome, Sue. Thank you. Happy to be here. Let's jump in and learn a little bit about you for the listeners. So how long have you been here? What brought you here? Give us the the rundown on Sue. Okay, I appreciate that. So I've been here almost 22 years. Um, I, as far as what brought me here, you know, the funny thing is I kind of came a little bit kicking and screaming. <laughs> um, my, So I'm a social worker and my mom... Um, was not technically a social worker, but she always did social worky things. And her career was in New York State, where I grew up. And so I, I, as a little girl, used to go out on home visits with her. She did a lot of work with older adults, setting up services in their homes, very similar to what we do here. Um, so she worked at a local area agency on aging in New York. Um, and, you know, I remember going to things like, um, uh, you know, bring your child to work day and she would be like, oh, this is Dan and he just got out of prison and (laughs) (laughs) that kind of thing. So I had that, um, social work experience from a really young age and I, um, I remember just always, um, I don't know, relating to it and, um, and I became a um, actually a personal care aide on um, during my breaks in college. So I would be the person going into people's homes and helping them. Um, and I remember the building where my mom worked, something really left an impression on me because there was a piece of graffiti on the building that someone had spray painted that said, God is poor. And that, like, just as a little kid, that really affected me. Interesting. Yeah, that message was really strong. But I kept telling my mom, like, I don't want to be a social worker. I don't know if I want to do this. Um, and But I just was drawn to it. It's in my blood. Um, I have other family members who are social workers, too. So, okay. Um, but I remember interviewing at COAAA and just being like, wow, this is, like, I was so impressed with such a healthy environment and I was just like this place just seems really well run and the people are super nice and I could just tell there was a lot of evidence that things were done in an intelligent manner Mm -hmm. and I remember like coming in for the interview and just being like you know kind of low-key about it like oh I'll just do an interview just to kind of practice but I didn't know that it was someplace I really wanted to work and then like just all of the encounters I was having with people, I was like, wow, I really like this place. I really want to work here. And then I started working harder at the interview. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love that story. And yeah. so who was the director at the time? Um, Cindy Farson. It was Cindy. Yeah, okay. Cindy was I the director so. at the time. Yeah. Great. So social work chose you, it sounds Social like. work chose me, definitely. Okay. Yeah. I love that story. I didn't know that you were a personal care aide. Yeah. I think we need to yeah. do a little survey here because there were a lot of, I was one of them too in college. I was oh, a home health so aide. Cool. And I think there's something to that around career paths mm-hmm. that we need to be leaning into a little bit. So, yeah. Okay. So now we know a little bit about Sue personally and how you came here. Now, can you share um, your title and then give a little overview of your program? Sure. Thank you. So my title is clinical manager. So I oversee the passport waiver program in an eight-county area, and we serve older adults age 60 and older. And just about everybody that we serve is based in a home environment. So that would be in a community setting, so not an institutional environment. So they're in um, either a house or trailer, an apartment, Um, And all of these individuals, we're trying to prevent premature nursing facility placement if that's what the individual wants. So, um, you know, we do honor that choice. And if somebody decides, no, I actually want to go to a nursing facility, then we help to facilitate that as well. Okay. 
But um, for as long as they're in the community, then we are overseeing services and helping them to be as successful with that goal as possible and keep them at home as safely as possible. Great. And Mm -hmm. so PASSPORT is an acronym? It is an acronym, which a lot of people don't realize. (laughs) Um, Yes. So it's a mouthful. It stands for um, pre-admission screening services, providing options and resources today. (laughs) Can you imagine when they were coming up with that? I know. What's a real catchy acronym (laughs) that we can use but then walk it backwards and figure out actually what words can apply to each of yes, the letters. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. And yeah. what year did Passport start or what year did COAAA start administering Passport? So Passport as a waiver program actually started in 1984. Okay. And that was the same year that COAAA started administering it as well. Okay. Um, we were actually one of the pilot sites. There were just two pilot sites in the state. So it was not statewide initially. It was just in Columbus, in central Ohio, and then in the Dayton area as well. Okay. And it um, was quite successful, and then it went statewide in 1990. So now Passport is in every single county, all 88 counties in the state. Okay. Not unlike yep. our MyCare pilot that now, you know, yes. just hot off the state budget is going to be going statewide as well. Yep. So you serve eight counties. Tell us Mm -hmm. a little bit about the consumers or the individuals that you serve. How many? What Mm -hmm. makes Passport Consumers maybe different than some of the other programs we case manage? Okay. So right now we serve just in our eight-county area around 3,500 clients. It's a little over 3,500 in Passport. Um, All of those individuals are age 60 or older, And those are all people who are living at home. So um, they might go in and out of a nursing facility for a short-term stay, but primarily they're at home. Okay. Um, Many of those people do live with family members, but many of them also um, reside alone. So, you know, there can be a lot of isolation that is faced by the individuals that we serve. Um, In Franklin County in particular, we actually serve a lot of people who don't speak English as their first language. Okay. So Central Ohio has um, a really significant immigrant and refugee population. And um, right now, about 58% of all eight of our counties um, of our individuals that we serve do not speak English as their first language. 58% of all of the individuals that we serve through passport yeah wow yeah and then yeah that's unique (laughs) that is unique and then franklin county it's even higher 71 percent of our of our franklin county individuals who we serve do not speak english as their first language that's incredible so tell me what does that mean for doing home visits or calls how does that work with translation services so we do have to work really closely with translation services Mm -hmm. um we, um, it can be a challenge at times. Um, you know, the case managers actually really develop relationships with some of the interpreters that, they, sure. that they tend to utilize over and over again. Um, we, for a lot of these folks, they do have family members in the home who can also help translate for some situations if it's just like a routine contact. Um, so that's actually really helpful. Um, many, what we tend to find is that many of the, um, cultures that are represented by the group of people that we serve, um, it's kind of a basic sort of philosophical tenet that, that family steps up and that, you know, we don't, you know, it's like sort of a more traditional American ethic is like, oh, you know, independence and, Mm. you know, everyone's kind of out that rugged individualism and all that. But um, that's not true of so many cultures and family comes first Mm -hmm. in many, many cultures. And so a lot of these folks are um, living with extended family and um, in some cases, close friends who are really kind of called family or you know, understood to be family members, even though they might not be biologically related. 
It's that social support network and exactly. Okay. Exactly. So if an individual is um, getting ready to do a a visit, they might call an individual um, translation service company. I I assume we have kind of a bunch of them that we go to and then they would coordinate that. Mm -hmm. So an individual would either do it over the phone with them or go out and actually do the home visit, right? Yes, exactly. Most of the time, there will be an interpreter actually in person okay. meeting them there in the home. Okay. Yep. Got it. So I did a home visit with, um, I think it was a passport mm-hmm. case manager, right? Yeah. And there was an interpreter that met us there and, and went in. It was pretty cool. That's awesome. And so with um, such vast cultural considerations that we need to be taking do we have ongoing trainings or how do we make sure we're you know being the best clinicians in that area we do so that's a that's an important question and we are constantly working on kind of building our cultural competency okay um so it's not really a place where you just sort of arrive and you're just like okay i'm culturally competent now (laughs) you know exactly (laughs) so it's always um just an ongoing goal that we're all working towards all the time. Okay. And fortunately, COAAA is a wonderful education department, and um, we have really excellent trainings that come in. And um, I actually just attended one on Nepali culture last week. That was really outstanding. So, and very helpful. So if somebody is working with um, clients or learn something or has questions, I assume they maybe reach out to Lynn Dobb to say, hey, could we, you know, schedule some training on this topic? Absolutely. Okay. Yep. And then you said there was one last week. Was there anything specific that you learned or any kind of aha moments? Yes, um, there were several. So um, the one last week was specifically about Nepali culture, and it was given by a Nepali gentleman who um, was himself a refugee and who has been a citizen now for many years um, in the U.S., and he's also a social worker. So he shared something that I thought was really important. Um, He was telling us that it's actually more respectful for us as case managers to refer to our clients more as grandma or grandpa rather than, you know, Ms. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so. And he was explaining that the use of the last name can be feel really demeaning to some Nepali individuals and that it harkens back to the caste system Hmm. and certain last names are going to be more associated with like the lower caste. And so if you say, you know, Oh, blah, 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 Mr. So-and-so he may feel as if you're like kind of calling that out and acting like, Oh, he's beneath you. But if you say grandpa, if you call him grandpa and he said the word to use is Baba. Okay. He said that could actually be, he'll feel really honored by you. He'll feel really respected. Um, And same with grandma. He said, you know, call someone grandma and they will will feel so honored and appreciated by you. And I believe the word for mama or grandma was um, my. Okay. So. That's um, major. That was really major. And I I asked several case managers who, who I saw were there and have worked with this population for a long time, had you ever heard that before? And they were also stunned. They had not. So that was a really great example to learn. Yeah. And those are the things that are important when you're in someone's home. Right? Absolutely. And you are wanting to be respectful and to know, you know, what to say to make sure that someone feels what you're intending that they feel. Absolutely. You know, um, there was another example, too, where, you know, we meet with a lot of people might be um, in the dying process, it's older adults or have a loved one in the dying process. And so, you know, maybe our client is on the on the program, but maybe their spouse has just died or something like that. And um, he said, you know, again, like kind of in American culture, a lot of times we're so used to like, oh, so-and-so just died, can I give you a hug? Or we're kind of big on touch or just like touching someone's arm, maybe patting them on the arm. And he said, it's really disrespectful to do that when someone is mourning, when they're recently mourning and grieving. 
being touched is extremely disrespectful. And so he said it's just so important to not do that. And again, that's just a really important thing to know. Definitely. Yeah, it makes a big difference in the way that, you know, all of our staff here want to make sure we're doing the best job possible and that people feel respected. And so, wow, yeah. those are some really yeah. great points. Absolutely. Now I now we need to have an episode on the various cultures that we serve. I yeah. think that would be really cool. That would be cool. <laughs> yep. So, okay, 3,500 individuals being mm-hmm. served. How big is your staff in Passport? So right now we're um, at right around 64 okay. staff. Okay. And um, we're actually... A little bit under where we'd like to be, so yes, it should be closer to seventy. Okay, yeah, and that's total staff. So case managers, care coordination assistants, all of that. That's exactly right. Okay, yeah. So um, in our next episode, we're going to be talking to a case manager as well as a float. Um, so we'll learn more about those. But tell us about some of the other positions in Passport too. So we have our wonderful supervisory team mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the supervisors work really closely with the case managers. Um, they're, you know, we really have a culture of support. And this work is is challenging and it can be stressful. And there's a lot to learn as well. So the supervisors play a strong supportive role in just helping their staff to problem solve and offer support and kind of be sort of coaches and cheerleaders and everything else everything in between exactly (laughs) exactly and then we also have some um medicaid support staff and they are amazing um they work as um kind of liaisons to the medicaid job and family services offices for all eight counties okay and so that is very niche knowledge I would say in many cases, our staff, our Medicaid staff know Medicaid better than some of the uh, county workers just because they've been doing it for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, um, we're we very fortunate to have that team. Um, and then the office support staff, um, we have a team that we call Passport Support, and uh, we just added to that team. So now we have four people, four members of that. Um, And these folks basically are just doing all kinds of things. They're sort of jacks of all trades um, to help support the case management staff in their work. Okay. Yeah. And so a huge piece of um, what case management and others do for Passport is connecting people to services. Mm -hmm. And so there's a whole other side of the shop where we have what, almost 400 agencies that are contracted passport providers. And um, do you mind sharing a little bit about how that works or any thoughts on that? Sure. Um, So, you know, it is interesting. This is one of the things that does make passport a little bit different is that because of the fact we have so many individuals um, from other countries originally, um, many of these folks do actually hire their own family members to be their paid workers. Mm -hmm. And they usually do that through an agency, a provider agency. So the family member can go um, become employed, apply for the job, become employed through that agency. So that has actually been a real strength of the program in many ways. Um, You know, throughout the pandemic, when there have been so many staffing challenges and just, you know, it's it's such a universal challenge right now. It, right. Um, it's actually really helped our area because, because it's family. In many cases, the people are already living right there. They're able to step up and, and ensure that the work gets done. So that's been a real strength of the program. That's helped us a lot. That's interesting. So it kind of goes hand in hand with the um, maybe cultural differences in caring for family members. Yes. And then assimilating that into a very American system to go apply for a job, work for a company, and get paid to provide the care yes. for your family member. And the nice thing about having that also is that then, you know, you already have someone who speaks the language. You already have someone who understands the maybe culturally specific behaviors and 
culturally specific foods that they need to prepare and all of those things. So kind of it can eliminate some of the challenges that you might have with having a more outside type person come into the home. Yeah, super interesting. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure we at least give a nod to another huge portion of your work, which is the assisted living waiver. Mm -hmm. So do you mind giving just a brief overview of that? And then we'll have you and some others back um, to do another episode on it. But I want to make sure that people, when they're listening to this, associate both programs with you. Absolutely. So um, the assisted living waiver is also a statewide waiver. Um, We have several hundred clients in our eight county area here, Lucio mm-hmm. AAA. Um, right now we have three case managers on the assisted living team. It's clearly a much smaller team mm-hmm. and one supervisor that oversees that. Um, and she also oversees passport staff as well. So the three case managers, we're very fortunate because they've all been doing this for a really long time. They're just, they're all total professionals and really know it like the back of their hand. Okay. And so the waiver, um, just maybe give like a definition of what the assisted living waiver is or does for older individuals. Sure. So um, tend to call it the AL waiver. Okay. And um, the whole goal is to um, serve individuals in a certified assisted living facility. So that becomes the individual's home. Um, and it's an opportunity for Medicaid to pay for the care in an assisted living setting. So, you know, there are lots of people out there where they just can't quite maintain successfully in what we might think of as a more traditional home setting, like a house or an apartment. And they need that structure of being in a facility, or they may just want the social aspect of it. Mm-hmm to be around a lot more residents. Um, The other thing is that you have, you know, the sort of built-in structure of your meals are right there on site. Um, You've got a nurse available who can bring you your meds and things like that. So it just provides that extra structure. It's a big difference. Yeah, so it's the in-between where if you are um, qualified for Medicaid, you can choose that type of setting. Yes. Yes. And again, we'll go more into it, but the budget, the state budget also passed um, higher reimbursement rates to hopefully encourage more ALs to participate in it. So yes, some good stuff coming down the pike. A very important thing. (laughs) It is. So tell us about your typical week or, you know, couple of weeks, depending on what you've got going on, but you know, a, a week in the life of Sue Housen. Okay. Um, I'm very busy. Uh, (laughs) I'm in a lot of meetings. Um, I mean, if you really kind of boil it down to the essence of what I'm doing, I I would say I'm having a lot of conversations every single day. Um, you know, I have an incredibly competent staff. I've, I've got just fantastic case managers and support staff and supervisors, and they're all very professional and know what they're doing. Um, so generally what ends up happening is that, you know, when you're, when you have these rules out there where we have a very rule centered program, um, the rules are black and white, but the world is gray. So generally it's more like the ethically challenging situations that tend to rise to my level. Okay. Um, those are usually the dilemmas that are are coming to me like, oh, this doesn't quite fit into the policy or, you know, we have this square peg in this round hole. So I feel like um, I honestly have the privilege of being in these problem-solving discussions um, kind of all day, every day. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's a real lot of that. Um, and I kind of love that. So I love I love ethics and I love the gray. Um, so, you know, when someone comes into my office and they're just like, hey, I've got this situation, like I get excited and energized by, wow, that's a different one. You know, let's, 
let's try to sort that out. And this and is why you're perfect for this role. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I really love it when I get something that I haven't heard before and just yeah. I get like really energized by it. <laughs> and do you use a lot of the Reamer model? That was a ethical decision making model. I you know, had to use a lot in, in my MSW. It's like I tend to because we're such a kind of rules based program, mm-hmm. I tend to look at the policies look at the pieces like where um you know is there anything that's addressed in the policy first and the rules um but again it's like so much of this stuff comes down to sort of clinical decision making it's not necessarily going to be in there right yeah so that leads me to the next question then so generally i ask the miracle question but i'd love to kind of ask the miracle question within policies and regulations like if there was one policy or rule that you could change Mm -hmm. to make things better for older adults in our service area what would it be Mm. or maybe one or two it might be hard to pick just one that's (laughs) an interesting question um hmm. well there is something that's being looked at right now um you know i mentioned the staffing challenges earlier so that occurs on a few different levels because you have, say, the challenges of your case management staff, not enough case managers, but there are also staffing challenges for the direct care workers, mm-hmm. so for the providers. Um, and the state has, during the pandemic, um, has enacted a bunch of flexibilities around you know, who can provide the direct care so again, this is kind of an ethical area um, where there are definitions and the rules about like, oh, certain relationships of people who are allowed to provide care. So for example, a spouse, um, the rule would say, you know, a spouse is not really supposed to be paid for providing care hmm. to their loved one. Um, and so there's kind of like a certain philosophy that's embedded in a rule like that because there's this kind of understanding or notion behind that that well a spouse should be doing that for free Mm -hmm. you know expectation it's an expectation Mm -hmm. so it's you know there's certain judgment that um is embedded in rules sometimes um and so But what we've seen during the pandemic is that, you know, there are times when the spouse might literally be the only person there who can provide care. And, you know, we've had people wait months and months um, on lists just waiting to get an outside aid from an agency. So some geographic areas are harder hit than others. so it's like if the spouse, if that's their only means of income and they can't leave the home to go get a job elsewhere, um, then that might be the best solution. So um, so I think, I think it's important that the state is kind of studying this and, um, and allowing for some flexibilities because it's, it's a way to help solve the problem. Yeah, it's... Um... I had a supervisor that coined this. It's it's feeding two birds with one muffin. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's providing the care that you need and also providing economic stability to a home that mm-hmm. needs it. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I like that one. So um, my final question for you is what do you want listeners to know about Passport? What else should we know about the program or the people or, you know, any kind of last encompassing thoughts? Um. I think, first of all, I mean, Passport is just very near and dear to my heart because I've worked in it for so long, and I just think it's a a wonderful program with such an important mission. Um, We really honor individual choices, and, you know, we even though we have all these rules and things that we have to follow, um, you know, I always say, as I get older, I want the right to make bad decisions, and you know that's that's a basic human thing and and that's important so I think you know it's really important to me that we honor people's dignity and their ability to 
be human and make mistakes and make bad decisions, but still be able to receive service at home as long as possible. Um, so I think that Passport does a really good job with that. And I think sometimes um, compared to some of the other waiver programs, we we do, I think we do a really good job with that. So I'm really proud of our staff because, again, I think some of that has to do with living in the gray, Yeah, being willing to live in the gray sometimes. Being comfortable with that. Yeah. 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 Thank you. And then yep. what'll be nice is to kind of hear um, next from some case managers around sort of what a day in the life is for them and different challenges. And I'm sure we'll have some um, some themes that emerge from both conversations. So definitely. I would really like to say that I just think that Passport has an amazing staff. Um, I feel just so proud of our staff. I feel humbled by our staff every single day. And it's just, it's I'm almost going to get choked up here because it's, it is a privilege to work with such professional and hardworking individuals every day. I agree. And yeah. I feel like that's one of this, the greatest joys um, out of this podcast is getting to sit down and really take time to learn about not only the programs and how they operate, but the amazing people from CLAAA that work in each of them. And um, we get to hear some stories about consumers. And I feel like it's really just... Um, a great snapshot into what we do and how we do it and the awesome people here. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation. All right. Now that we have heard all about the history of Passport and Sue has given us that great overview, I also wanted to make sure that we heard from the uh, renowned case managers of Tobin Shepherd and Wes Baxter. So welcome. Thank you for joining us to talk Thank about Passport. Um, Tobin, why don't we start with you? How long have you been here and what's your role? I've been with the Central Ohio area. I don't need to say the entire agency's name. I think we all know where we work. I've been here for 13 years, and all 13 of them have been with Passport. That's great. I didn't even know that, actually. And yeah. Wes, how about you? Uh, I think it's 13 for me also, maybe 14. Um, I took a few years off, and we had uh, our daughter was born. So I stayed home with her for a couple years there. So that puts me at like the same level. But I... I spent time and I started out in Passport and um, eventually I went over into Molina a little bit when my care started and then I did a little stint in senior options and then I've been back in Passport for the last five, six years. Look at so, you around the yeah. case management block. All you That's have to right. do is do a little stint in Aetna and then you get your whole punch card. You know, I've still got like 20 years to go, so I'm not ruling anything out. And that's on the record. You're not <laughs> going anywhere for 20 years. So fill up his caseload. No, I'm just kidding. Bad for just you. kidding. <laughs> you got 20 years too, my friend. I know, I know, I know. My wife won't let me stay at home until then. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, obviously Passport's our longest standing um, program that we've had here, and we've talked about the importance of it in history in Ohio in general. But, you know, what I'd like for folks to learn is a little bit about your daily um, work that you do. And so each of your roles are a little bit different. This time, let's start with Wes. Tell us a little bit about your role and, and what you do on a daily basis. Yeah, sure. Um, I was an out-of-county case manager for a long time uh, up in Delaware. That's where I'm, where I live. Um, but we never had a lot of people up there. So I always kind of did a little Delaware, a little Franklin, kind of spread around a little bit. And then a position came open maybe like, oh, I don't know, a year and a half ago where we had a we have a floating role, which basically just covers people who are out on leave or if, um, you know, somebody just gets really slammed and needs some visits done. Or uh, So we, we go out there and we, we, do case, we do home visits and casework for people who are off as okay. a floater. We also do uh, tra staff for um, trainings for new staff. Um, and then just some more of like the uh, just kind of meeting with the supervisors and, and giving them kind of like the lay of the land as far as how things are going with case management and clients and things. Okay. And you know, that float role is really important. I love the way that our um, clinical teams are thinking about staffing. Um, it's difficult to step away for a vacation or sick or anything like this when you know you're visiting 
visits are piling up. And so I'm loving the way um, that we're utilizing that float role. And I hope to continue to see it grow because I know it's stressful to go on vacation and think, well, I'm not really off for a week because I smushed all my work into the week before and the week after. Yeah, yeah. You got to work twice as hard before you go and twice as hard to get caught up. Yeah. But uh, hopefully we can alleviate some of that. Kind of depends on, you know, how many people we have out, but we're trying to cover things for others. It's a, It was a change for me because I was used to having those same people every year. You know, we, we like Tobin, I think you still have like a lot of the same consumers you've had for a long, long time, many years. Yeah, I, I recently uh, lost a consumer who I had for 10 years. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, it, it happens when you have a, a stable caseload. You get these people and you, you really keep them for what feels like forever and you become part of their lives, you really understand what's going on in their households. Yeah. So Tobin, what's your role and kind of explain the difference between what you do and what Wes does as a float? Well, I have my own set of consumers who I I help navigate through the program. Okay. Um, What, currently it's up to 75. Oh, dear. I've seen more. Okay. I've also seen a lot less. Okay. It's a lot easier when it's on the lesser end. Okay. But nevertheless, no matter what you have, these people are still deserving of getting a high-quality experience when they're interacting with the program. Definitely. So we just go out there. Yeah, yeah. See as many as you can. You get them connected to resources. You try to help steer them down paths that are going to benefit them. While understanding at the same time, you're dealing with individuals who have the right to make their own decisions. Mm -hmm. And it's not our job to agree or disagree with any of the decisions, but just to try to to, uh, amplify um, their safety in making those decisions. Yeah. And so as a uh, case manager, what is one of the biggest challenges you'd say you're facing these days? Staffing. Staffing. Mm-hmm. Not our staffing, which okay. is tight already, but staffing in the providing agencies. Okay. Tell me more about that. Um, my county is Fairfield, okay. and the more rural counties are just struggling to find basic services. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a shortage for personal care aides countywide. Um, it's now not uncommon for me to receive a new consumer and discover that they only have meals in an emergency response unit in place Hmm. when their primary reason for signing up for the program was to get a personal care aid in. And I have someone currently who has been on the program for a year, and I've been looking for a solid year to try to find a personal care aid to help this woman out. It just doesn't exist, and it's because of where she lives. So how do you set those expectations for her around what she needs and what is possible? I have no other option but to be honest. Um, I walk into their homes and I just let them know what the the truth is, that the staffing is minimum or two doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And that while I will work and I will work hard on trying to find you somebody we can't make the promise that we're going to get you anyone anytime soon. Um, I encourage them to speak with their family members, their friends, their religious affiliation groups, to, to try to find anyone else who can step in and just provide some help. Okay. Um, because if you're waiting on me, it could take me a day, it could take me a week, a month, a year. I can't predict that. Okay. We had to get really creative with how we were going to address this when things started to try to get back to normal here, and we got such a provider shortage for AIDS. Um, Meaning after COVID. After COVID, yeah. Um, Now I think there's – what we look for a lot is – could we meet this need with a different service that we also provide? Um, We do the minor home modifications. You know, sometimes if we can, uh, you know, make it easier for someone to get in their tub or their shower because it's a a walk-in. We've had a walk-in established. If that person's like wheelchair confined, Mm -hmm. maybe, um, you know, somebody else could help them until we get them an aid by just making the whole process easier with like a walk-in shower or tub cut or something like that. And um, we've also utilized even more the... The, uh, consumer-directed um, program through Passport. It's a way for you to be able to get an aid without having to go through one of the contracted agencies. So essentially, 
you know, you say, I, I think I want to participate in this this type of um, program um, through Passport. And if you have somebody like a family member who wants to do the work, they can become um, licensed through the state, through the Ohio Department of Aging, okay. to be an independent provider if they choose to do that. And and some people have made that choice. Um, it takes a little while to get on, maybe like three months or so. Um, but we can provide services through agencies while they're waiting to do that too. So it's just another creative way the state's devised to be able to bring that service to more people, especially people who want to like kind of control it more in-house. Okay. Um, so that's kind of taken off also lately. So again, it's this creativity, it's this thinking outside the box. How do we do what we used to be able to do really easily, right? Remember mm -hmm. the days when there were just tons of agencies to choose from mm -hmm. yeah, and you'd say, yeah. call these three and interview them and see who you want. And now it's like, okay, we know there's no AIDS. What else can we do? What's the actual problem? What resources do we have to try to meet this need right. while we wait? Right. And I and I think that's agency-wide, you know, statewide, actually. Um, we're hearing that from all the different passport sites around the care um, uh, providers around to um, I had some place I was really going to go good with this but it now must I, have been now profound slipped out slipped well that's out all right it'll come back okay. and I do want to make sure so we heard about case management challenges and talk to us a little bit Wes about float challenges so um, you know it sounds like there would be some differences from carrying the same case for a long time versus mm -hmm. float when you're stepping in and anything could be going on yeah yeah the the thing that's challenging about being the float is your caseload's constantly changing over and it could change over where like uh, this week I think I lost like 20 people off my caseload and then I got like 25 brand new ones and you know I don't know these folks yet but um we have a way for them to call in to our passport support gals and got to throw them a shout out to here because Definitely. we have um, some passport CCAs, which are kind of like, um, how do you, how do you describe their role, Tobin? They don't go out and do home visits. They might not be a social worker or a nurse, but they're doing a lot of behind the scenes, gathering information, trying to set up services, just passing on information to where it needs to go. So people will call in, sometimes speaking to them knowing their case managers off and then that will get directed to me okay. and then I can just try to jump in there and hopefully keep somebody from falling through the cracks okay um so I mean is it a little bit of a challenge yeah but I kind of like it too it changes things up it's a little bit more of like a love them and leave them approach <laughs> uh when he's been with people same people for 10 years and I might know somebody for you know 10 weeks okay. um so right now my load is made up of maybe like three or four different case management's manager's caseloads. Okay. And they're just combined and I've got them. So my numbers are up a little bit. So I'm just doing a whole lot of home visits and just finding out what people need to address right now. And this is very complicated stuff that sometimes we get into. And being here for as long as we have, um, we've picked up on some of these little nuances yeah. through JFS. And, and you know, people ask questions a lot about, well, this doesn't make any sense to me. How does this work? And then we can kind of take them through that. And, uh, you know, people say, like, I never would have thought all this information was out there and it's like you know it's not information that's advertised or marketed or well known so you know that's our role here as an agency as a program is to help people with the services that we can but also pass on the information that they're going to need to know to make good choices for themselves in the long term it's that experience it's that wisdom that learned knowledge that really comes with the role and one of the things that i um have learned and has become so clear to me since being here is how strong our clinical staff is i mean we have some of I'm biased, but the best clinicians in the region. And because it is this dedication, whether you're with someone a long time or stepping in, it's like, you know, these are our folks and we are going to serve them and we are going to meet our mission and we're going to be scrappy and we're going to be creative, but we'll get it done. And, um, you know, that to me is one of my favorite things to think about when I know how big the caseloads are, when I know how stressed people are. Um, I like to think about the folks that have been here a while and, you know, you all tell me it's okay. It's been worse. It's been better, but we're going to get through it. And I know you guys are all helping the, the new folks out. So, so appreciate that. 
you know, as long as you're busy and useful, I mean, it's always going to be feast or famine, right? You know, with this, you know, with what we're doing. But uh, if you can just be there and have a good listening ear, it's amazing what we can all accomplish, you know, with between our consumers and our, our clinicians. And I think that's that's spot on what they're looking for more than anything. They're going through a lot of stuff and it's it's all personal for them. And they've never encountered a system as dynamic as this one can be. They're just looking for someone who's willing to be there. Mm -hmm. They're not expecting me to have all the answers. And I'm open with them that I'm barely smart enough to write my own name 99% of the time, let alone answer a question about what Job and Family Services is actually doing. And um, just them knowing that they can call and whatever is going on, I will be present with them, mm-hmm. be it physically or be it as an emotional support, um, offering services through Passport. We are there, and that means the world to them. Absolutely. And the Surgeon General came out with a report recently about our loneliness epidemic, and there are certain scales and questions that you know they're asking a number of people. One of the biggest things around isolation is, do you have someone you could call if you needed something? And we oftentimes are that person for people. And so we might not be able to get you your home health aid as quickly as we used to or different services, but we in ourselves, in and of ourselves as our case managers and as our staff, we are that person that people can call. And so we're an intervention as much as finding and locating and coordinating a home health aid is. Certainly. Yeah. So let's talk about your your favorite story, your biggest success story. Everybody's always got these bag full of amazing stories. So Tobin, why don't you um, start off? What's a, a great success story for you? A great success story? Well, success or something, you know, what's one of your stories that you tell about being a passport case manager? I don't know if I could say it into a hot microphone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what's a different story? <laughs> um. So one of my favorite stories um, in, involves a, well, it's not even a story, it's just, it's just one of my f- favorite moments okay. of working, doing what we do. I, I had a uh, a 96-year-old consumer, um, female, lived in Baltimore. Um, age had had, had had a time with her, and she was pretty, pretty beaten up, and just body was given out on her. Okay. Um worked hard to keep services in place and and just going into her home and visiting her and seeing her light up with just being around and her her smile was infectious she was loved by everyone in the in the building um just seeing her and helping her as she was aging as gracefully as possible really that stuck with me that Mm -hmm. that meant a lot to me um, and that, that's one of my favorite memories. Well, recently, too, I, I just lost another consumer who turned 100. Oh, my. And the day she turned 100, I was, uh, was in the office for a big chunk of the day. I was well behind on paperwork, so I was working like crazy. But I made the made my decision that I was going to just go out to her home to see her on her 100th birthday to wish her a happy 100th birthday. I got some balloons and a card and just headed over there. Um, she was normally pretty confused, but for that day, she had a lot of clarity. And to see her joy just being recognized for having 100 years of life, that's another thing that it, it made me feel really, really warm on the inside. And then the next day, I got a phone call saying that she was hitting on her aid. So it, oh, geez. Yeah, it was tons of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And it's like, you know, there are a lot of really, really tough moments and interactions. Um, but those are some of the things I always say. If I could just bottle this feeling up after this, bottle it up for the hard days, because that's what that's what keeps you going. Wes, how about you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just listening to Tobin talk about that, you know, just kind of brings up, you know, me smiling internally about some of the things that I've encountered over the years. Like you say, it's sometimes very serious. It's very stressful. Not not for us per se, but we're dealing with families who are in stress, you know, in crisis. Um, so sometimes you, you you kind of forget all this good stuff that happens because you just focus on what am I going to do with this person? How, how are we going to get from point A to point B? Um, 
But the little moments, and I'll, I'll just highlight one for you. It's, it was so funny when it happened. Uh, I had, I had this, this little lady um, who I had been with for a long time, um, and you know, she had progressively, her dementia had taken over progressively during this time. So the person I knew really well for a long time didn't know me so well anymore okay. by the time I went out to see her when she was in a nursing facility. And we knew it was kind of coming to the end where she was probably going to be a long-term resident there. And I popped in, and it happened to be around Christmas time. And her eyes lit up, and she said, oh, my gosh, it's my big, fat, round, beautiful Santa Claus. And I just (laughs) laughed so hard because I was like, well, I could have done without the big, round, fat part. But it is almost the holiday. And if that's how you're looking at me, well, you know, God bless it. You know, I was just totally down for that. And those are the things that you just have to love and you think about many years after the fact and you just smile and it's about anything like that is really Absolutely. what I, you and you know, think enjoy. about the joy that santa i would assume means yeah, to her yeah. and if you embodied that joy that is amazing yeah. i love that <laughs> i guess we know who's dressing up as santa next year <laughs> i've got the suit upstairs we use it for erc all the time <laughs> <laughs> all right so as we come to a close um i i try to get some final thoughts what does staff need to know about being a float in passport? What do you, what do you think they need to know? Um, you know, I just want people to feel supported as much as possible. So, you know, I kind of wear that a little bit as a badge of honor. And I'm not the only float in passport. Um, a person I've been floating with for the last year and a half or so, her name's Brand Schick. She is phenomenal. She gets so much done for people. She knows everything. Um, it's really been great working alongside her. And she just uh, got promoted to a supervisory role in passport. So it's good to see her kind of moving on there. But yeah, I think what's most important to me is just making sure I can do whatever I can to be useful to help other people manage their caseloads. I love it. And Tobin, how about you? What do people need to know about being a case manager and passport? Final thoughts? Um, I've always taken the, the role of being a case manager in, in passport or just in, in general as being that that support. Um, they're in a tumultuous sea. It, it, Problems and crises are crashing in on them from all directions. And all they really want is that one beacon to just stand there in the midst of all these storms and just let them know it's okay. We can figure our way out through this. It's not the end of the world. Sure, this didn't work out the way we had thought of at first, and we might have to do a few extra steps to get there, but it's all doable. We can still reach your goals. We don't need to give up right now. Um, so giving them that, that sense of security. While and hope. And hope. Yes, that's the right word, hope. Absolutely. So we're the beacon. We're the hope in the in the storm. You said it so beautifully. And I think I have um, gone on a couple of home visits, and one of them was with Passport. And just knowing the, the places and the environments and the situations that you all face um, are very, very overwhelming. Um, But when you've been in it a while, the confidence and sort of the calm that the team here brings is just, um, it's really mind blowing. And again, I just love that we've got this great team of clinicians here. And we are the people that are going to be the beacon and the hope. And no matter how difficult the situation, we're just going to keep trying. So I love it. Yeah. Yep. I tell people all the time, I'm too dumb to know how to stop. You don't give yourself enough credit. You're an incredible employee. And if you feel that way too out there, come join our ranks. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> if you too also don't know what you're doing, no, just kidding. <laughs> well, thank you both so much. Um, it's been a joy, and I appreciate you being here. Thanks. Kim. Thank you. Thanks to Sue, Tobin, and Wes. I hope now you know something about Passport. <laughs>